Okay. <clears throat> you ready to go there, Reg? All right. I am. <clears throat> yes, my voice is... I think it's back to normal. I'm every so often blowing my nose, but there's still some remnants of winter left here. Although the weather is getting better. It's getting warmer. But uh, listen to that. That's, that's me breathing through my nose. I couldn't do that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> All right. We ready to go? Cool. Uh, I'll give you the uh, three S's in the countdown, and you give me the music. I'll give you a podcast. How's that? Put it in the books here. Episode 304. 304. Okay? Here we go. Star, smile, strong. All right. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Of course we're there. But regular listeners know that your responsibility doesn't end just by hitting play. Oh, no, 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 no. Get out there. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcastic, and it should be theirs, too. Your loyalty, devotion, and, of course, that little extra effort warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> if you like what you hear, don't forget, you go to WGNRadio.com, you hit the prompt for the podcast, you hit the prompt for this specific podcast, and there you will find a plethora of podcasts just waiting for you to pick from and binge on. There should be, if they're all in there, 303 previous episodes. As I always say, listen to where we've been so you know where we're going. If this is 304, then the next one will be 305. How's that for addition? Anyway, welcome to the podcast. What I want to talk about today is um, I would never have expected to have um, felt this way, but I do, about this specific performer. I have to give major, major props and I have a completely new um, appreciation and respect for a recording artist that, uh, you know, has been on my radar screen like everyone else's radar screen in the last 35 or, you know, or so years, 40 years, more than that. Um, I've been a fan, uh, you know, from a distance, nothing major, 
I've appreciated what she's done. I've my appreciation for her has grown through the years as I have gotten more um, information and knowledge about her career. And I do give her a lot of credit because she started as kind of a of a punchline, kind of a joke, really. But her talent uh, was able to cut through all that, as well as her perseverance. And now, in 2022, I have an immense amount of respect for none other than Dolly Parton. <laughs> now you say, Jim, Dolly Parton? Why, why Dolly Parton, of all people? Well, there's no question, as I've said, especially in the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, certainly in the last 10 uh, the overall appreciation and respect for Dolly Parton in our culture, especially in the entertainment world, has risen greatly. Uh, we are certainly in a, a period right now, and we have been for at least the last 10 years, if not a few more, of a female-empowered society. At least that's been our goal. Um, for a while, and we are beginning to act on it. I'm sure for many people, we they still feel that we have a long way to go, and that may be the case, but there's no doubt that uh, in our culture, not even just in pop culture, but in our culture in general, we have made um, significant strides. Some of them have happened organically to elevate the role and the respect and the opportunity for women. Some of them have some of some of that uh, of that movement has been inspired, sadly, by um, not so great things that have elevate who that have that have put a spotlight on bad behavior that have made women unfortunate victims and that have held women down. And we are we are confronting many of those, and we are looking to remove those and point those out and we are looking to constantly break that glass ceiling that so many women for so many decades have complained about of being able to only go so far on the ladder especially in business or in government or in politics or in any kind of uh, professional endeavor uh, there's always there's there they, they talk about the glass ceiling and by that they mean that there's only a certain level that women were allowed to go through. But as we stand now here in, in 2022, as I say, the, the second most powerful person in the country, by title at least, is a woman and an African-American woman. Kamala Harris is the vice president of the United States, one, one as they always say, a heartbeat away from the presidency. So that uh, is not a bad glass ceiling to have broken, certainly. We see uh, in many, many uh, CEO as well as um, in government especially, we are seeing more women in um, positions of power. Here in the Chicago area where I'm from, uh, the major power base in this city is all female. 
We have a and and, and African American females. We have a black mayor, Lori Lightfoot. We have the head of the Cook County Board, which is a the biggest county in Illinois, which includes Chicago, is headed by Tony Preckwinkle, an African American woman. The uh, the state's attorney, or the count, uh, the district, um, uh, yeah, right, state's attorney, um, is an African American woman, Kim Fox. So those are major power uh, positions that are held not only by women, but by African-American women. So there's no question that uh, now there's a lot more work to be done. I'm not saying that we're finished, but certainly um, we have been in a, uh, in a, yeah, the state's attorney, I'm sorry, Cook County state's attorney, Kim Fox, uh, another powerful position, de- 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 you know, determining who is prosecuted and who isn't. So we've got the mayor, the head of the Cook County Board, which dispenses services to help everybody in Cook County. We've got the mayor who runs the city of Chicago, and Kim Fox, who is uh, you know. Basically, the head of the judicial of the the judicial system in the state or in the Cook County, in Cook County. So those are th- three very powerful positions held by women, and in in this case, all three African American women. Uh, more work to be done, certainly, but you can't deny that uh, some progress has been made. We have we are in a. In an era right now of female empowerment, you see it everywhere on social media, you see it uh, on television, you see it in magazines, uh, empowerment, empowerment. If you watch television shows, you see women now um, in, uh, you know, in lead roles, uh, prominently featured. There's a show uh, on ABC called Big Sky. All the major characters are women. And they're in powerful positions. They're, you know, it's like a murder mystery kind of thing. But this woman uh, is leading, is one of the the, the leading police women on this uh, police, you know, women on this case. And she's being helped by some female private investigators. And uh, I mean, these are all there's all women. Most many TV shows are either about women, um, you know in powerful positions now big big lies was a uh, was a show that was very popular all women characters um so there certainly there's always been women in in films and tv but uh now they are the main lead characters and that's been the case in many places i'm not saying that hasn't happened but now you are seeing a plethora of those more and more shows have a uh a female character at the head, or if not, they are right there with the with the the male lead uh, in films as well. Uh, and now directors, we're seeing more women directing. So there's no question. Um, a lot of this, as I said, has 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 happened through what we would hope to be a natural progression and a national ev- you know uh, evolution of our society. 
Uh, but then also the Me Too movement that uh, sadly <laughs> came to the forefront uh, several years ago when many women who uh, for years were um, either embarrassed or uh, were being blackmailed into not talking about uh, sexual harassment kind of situations where they were forced to do things in order to either keep their jobs or to get a promotion or things like that. And finally, uh, you know, it takes just one brave person to come forward and then suddenly the floodgates open and uh, we were seeing many prominent people, uh, prominent businessmen uh, go down in flames, Harvey Weinstein and uh, Bill Cosby and many others with uh, who were some of the leading um, leading men in in business, and we saw Bill Gates basically uh, wind up losing, you know, leaving Microsoft and getting a divorce after it was it was shown that he was having an affair and may have done some, um, you know, sexual harassment kind of, um, uh, you know, there were rumors at least, but certainly he, he admitted to an affair. Um, so we're, we, we've certainly seen a huge shift in our culture. And, um, and Dolly Parton, to get back to that, um, is certainly one who has benefited from that. A lot of times, uh, in, especially in entertainment, um, if, you, if, you, if you live long enough and if you stay relevant and if you have had an impact and maybe you've been overlooked for a long time in the world of entertainment. If you're able to live a long life and, and stay relevant, um, it seems that, especially in today's world, because there's so much access to uh, you know, putting things out on social media, that many times your accomplishments, hopefully at least, and I think we're seeing that, your accomplishments are finally being recognized and dolly parton i believe is certainly in that category now for those of you that are younger uh you may not remember uh but dolly parton has been around for a long time going back into the the you know the the 60s and early 70s dolly parton was first associated with a country singer named porter wagner that's where she first came to prominence. And I remember as a very little kid, I mean, I don't even know why I remember this, but I just remember Porter Wagner. He had this huge uh, pompadour hair. I never heard a song of his. I never was a big country music fan, especially when I was a little kid. Um, country music was, was, was far from the mainstream music that we know today. There, was, there were a few country stars that you knew of and every so often they would have a crossover hit that would get onto the the um the mainstream charts but for the most part sadly as like as so much of our society was um you know 40 50 60 70 years ago there were there were little segregated pockets of things and there was there was the main pop culture and then there were these little pockets and and country music was one of those extremely popular among the people that liked country music, certainly especially in the southern part of the country, extremely popular. 
with a great loyalty of a fan base. And so that's where you, you know, you've got your Waylon Jennings and your Willie Nelsons and your Johnny Cashes and your June Carters and um, your Chris Christoffersons um, and, uh, and all those folks, your Loretta Lynn's, a hugely um, popular, uh, but still not completely mainstream, especially not the way country music is now. And so every so often, as like I said, you'd hear a, a breakout hit. You know, Johnny Cash would have, you know, a Ring of Fire or A Boy Named Sue was a big one. You know, Willie Nelson, um, you know, would, would, you know, especially in, in, in the 70s and 80s uh, with the, uh, the Urban Cowboy soundtrack was huge in elevating country music into the mainstream. It was a John Travolta film and uh, the soundtrack album was uh, one of the biggest sellers in 1980, and it helped uh, elevate some longtime country music artists like Mickey Gilley and uh, and Willie Nelson, who then wound up, you know, really uh, becoming a mainstream star uh, after the the popularity of uh, of Urban Cowboy, which just brought country music a huge exposure into the mainstream. And um, so while country music has always been a major part of the American culture, it was always still a a, a niche. And it's been over the last 40 years where it's really grown in in the last 15 or 20, especially thanks to Garth Brooks, who brought it into another level and another height of awareness by blending country music and pop, and especially the way he presented himself in concert. He, 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 he gave a concert like a rock star. Many country stars would have big hits, crossover hits, but they still were very traditional in the way they presented themselves in their bands and in their performance. But Garth Brooks uh, was, was, was a country star, but was born and raised in a rock and roll culture. And so when he got his chance, he brought um, some of the performing kind of skills that he had admired in people like uh, Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen and things like that to his show and really changed the way that country music was presented now. So it, it not only was the sound becoming more mainstream and getting onto regular radio, but then when you went to see a Garth Brooks concert, it felt like a rock concert. It didn't feel like a, a country uh, kind of concert, which was made of low key with a little small band and not much movement. He was he was flying around and, and running around. He was he was out of the as I said before the Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, Rolling Stones kind of um, of influence to his his uh, live show, which really changed country music as a as a as a as a as a concert attraction as well so dolly parton getting back to dolly um has been around for quite a long time as i said she started with porter wagner who was this country music and i just remember that there was this the porter wagner show and it was it was like a, it was a small syndicated show it was on here in chicago on, on i can't remember even what station but um 
But Dolly was a part of that. She was she was like she was kind of like his uh, you know Porter Wagner's sidekick to some extent on this show, and she had the big giant blonde wig. And of course, Dolly was known for many years for 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 the the first at least you know the first twenty fifteen or twenty years of especially of her of her mainstream kind of uh, career. She was known for her big breasts and as sexist as that may sound that is true dolly parton was a punchline for many if, especially if you watch johnny carson johnny carson especially in the 80s late 70s early 80 mid 80s uh that was dolly parton was her, the 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 punchline was always Dolly Parton's breast. If there was a joke about breasts, Dolly Parton's name was somewhere in there. Uh, despite the fact that she was obviously a very talented person, but things were very sexist back then. It was very male driven, and so it was it was okay to make fun of Dolly's breasts. And Dolly was play you know she 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 wasn't dumb in her view she had been around for a while in the country world and was and was you know especially in the late 70s and the mid 80s uh she began to get mainstream success and she didn't necessarily um she she didn't uh promote her sexiness or her breasts but she also didn't come out and say Johnny Carson is a misogynist because I think back then her view was, hey, as long as they're talking about me, maybe it'll help me get my records on the radio. She had her first major success, crossover success. She had quite a few country successes, but her first major, major success was in around 1977 where she had this pop song called Here We Go, Here, Here You Come Again. And she didn't write it, but it was a very catchy pop song, and you you probably have heard it. Here you come again, just when I thought that I had myself together. You walked right through the door, just like you did before, and pretty soon I'm wondering how you... Yeah. <laughs> that was a... Uh, Here I go, Here you come again, and here I go. <laughs> it's my Dolly Parton. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was a huge hit for her. And then um, after that, she had some great success uh, in the film Nine to Five, which now has become sort of a female empowerment uh, icon movie and then became a, a very popular musical. And then in the uh, later on, uh, Whitney Houston has this 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 gargantuan hit, you know, from the Bodyguard soundtrack. You know, uh, "I Will Always Love You," which you know is still one of the greatest uh, you know rendition you know songs of you know, in, 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 the, in pop history, the way Whitney Houston sang that song. And then, as a little kind of side note, while Whitney is taking the world by storm with the, the vocal on that song, where she's hitting those amazing high notes, we find out that Dolly Parton wrote 
that song? Who knew that Dolly Parton wrote that song? And I will always love you. Now, you listen to Dolly Parton's original version, and it's much more low-key, and it's much more got a country Dolly Parton flavor to it, and Whitney Houston turned it into this huge, regal, uh, dramatic, bombastic song with this amazing high note that uh, that has that has influenced every singer since that song came out. Even in today's world, now they've taken all those those runs of female singers. But. Whitney's voice, you that that song is just it, it it doesn't get much better than that. But it was written by Dolly Parton, and I think after that there was a, a, a there was when, when that when that came out there was a new appreciation for Dolly Parton. People started to look at Dolly Parton a different way, and then and they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, wait, she she wrote that song. And then people started to dig a little deeper into Dolly Parton's uh, back catalog. And we find out that she wrote many of her own songs. And then, even though it was a big hit, a country song, it was never a huge mainstream uh, you know, crossover hit. But then this song, Jolene, about you know, a wife finding out about her husband's mistress. And now that's become this iconic song and this and this kind of female empowerment anthem because it's a woman confronting her husband's mistress. And so once again, it's this this kind of un you know it's unspoken thing. And and here was a a woman writing about a very common, sadly, but uh, uh, you know a, a, an un. An untalked about topic, and and Dolly nailed it, and she was speaking for a lot of women, and so now Jolene, while never a huge mainstream crossover pop hit, has become one of the most uh, well known songs, certainly in Dolly Parton's uh, catalog. Here we here you come again was a huge hit. Crossover hit on the Billboard, you know, top uh, top one hundred. Jolene wasn't, but more people know and respect the song Jolene than they do "Here You Come Again," which Dolly did not write, as I said. But it was a huge hit. It's what put her on the map mainstream. It's what helped her become a, a major star. After "Here You Come Again," uh, you saw Dolly then on on many of the variety shows. That were so popular in the late seventies, you know, like Carol Burnett and things like that, and she'd have her own specials. And then, as I said, in in, in the eighties, she became a movie star. It was all because of "Here You Come Again." Even though, as I said before, there's other songs like Jolene, and now you know, um, "I Will Always Love You," which she wrote, have become much more well-known and signature songs of hers but it was here we come here you come again in 1977 that started the ball rolling for her. so so dolly has been around for a long time but there's no question even her most popular songs 
were still considered country songs. They, they were written from a country music sound and perspective. And so while she has been a mainstream artist to some extent, she is still considered a country artist. That's, that's her bread and butter. She's, she's sung, you know, she had the hit with 9 to 5, the lead, you know, the, the, the lead song from that film, which became another hit. But, um, but that still has a little country boogie-woogie to it as well. So Dolly Parton is, and especially in today's world, you know, we're trying to break down barriers of you know pigeonholing or categorization. But the fact is that country that that whether you want to be politically correct or not, the fact is Dolly Parton is a country artist. So <laughs> then. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gets involved in in this story now because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I've spoken about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, in the past on this uh, on this podcast. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a very interesting organization and entity. For those of you who are too too young to remember, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was devised in the late 80s, around 85 or 86, first devised. It was um, the brainchild of some of the leading record company and music influencers of the day, including Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone magazine and uh, uh, Armad uh, Artigan of Atlantic Records and many others. And it was hatched because, you know, for people, it's hard for people to, to, um, to understand this, but for, for the first 25 or 30 years of rock and roll's existence, it was still considered a fringe music. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. It wasn't until the 80s, and it really wasn't until the birth of MTV, and not even just the birth of MTV, MTV but the real, um, I would say, by, by 83 or 84, even though MTV started in 1981, as cable television grew and became more of a power as it, as it crossed the country and more people were getting connected, because tape, cable television was not just did not just blanket the country. It it, it started um, in in rural parts of the country first because it couldn't. Don't forget this is the way. Cable, if you don't know, cable television using that cable, literally that cable, first came about because to serve rural parts of the country that were so far out away from major um, centers of the population that the broadcast signals could not reach them. And so in order for them to get television, cable television was devised. Instead of sending the signal of the programming over the air, like most people got it for free, over the air, people had antennas on their houses 
and their antennas picked up the signal and brought it into their television set. That's the way television worked for the first 35 or 40 years of its existence. But to serve the rural areas, cable television was in these rural areas where the signal was more difficult to get through, whether it was because of the rural areas uh, you know, topography of the of, of of a lot of land, you know, trees, or in some cases, you know, bad weather. So they devised a way to 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 send the programming through a cable, and that's how cable television first done, and for a fee, obviously. But at least these people in rural areas were able to get the same programming that everyone else was getting. They had to pay a, a nominal fee, but at least they were able to get it. But for a while, they, they were kind of out in the boonies. But then, in the late 70s and early 80s, cable operators were looking for ways to expand. And they started to offer premium content on the cable HBO home box office HBO means home box office first run films well not first run films but films that were you know in in theaters relatively uh, soon after their first run were suddenly available on cable and that's the way the cable business grew Content was king. They were offering something that uh, then they were offering you know shows that uh, that might have a little more risque uh, you know kind of content sexually or you know language wise that the F- you know the FCC wouldn't allow on on broadcast cable, and then suddenly more cable networks and cable stations began to arise, and there was a whole package of programming that was appealing to people. And so even though people were getting their network television and all their television for free over the air, they were like, you know what, I'm willing to pay because there's some really cool stuff that I can't get on my regular television. And so there was HBO and Showtime and Cinemax and those kind of things that that drove it initially. And then there were some other stations like Comedy Central and, um, and things like that. But really, there's no question. The game changer was MTV. And I spoke about this on a podcast a, a couple of years ago, when, uh, well, last year, when, when MTV celebrated its, its 40th anniversary. MTV changed so many um, aspects of our culture. It's, it's, it's really amazing. But there's no question that uh, the adoption of cable television around the country, not in just pockets, but around the country, covering the country, was due to MTV. You had to have MTV. I want my MTV. You had to have it. And so while it started very um, very small, it very quickly became the cool thing to happen. And I was right in that age group. I mean, I had to have my MTV. <laughs> I mean, I was 18 years old. I had to have my MTV in the, in the early 80s. And, uh, and so, uh, but many pockets of the, of the country were very late to get it, you know, big cities, especially like Chicago here with all the politics, 
uh, involved. You know, they, they didn't. It, we, you know, the suburbs in the Chicago area got it before the the actual city did. But my point is, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, with now by 1985 or 86, MTV was a major, major pop culture and musical force. It was it was more powerful than radio. People, bands were breaking on MTV. Radio stations were now not breaking artists. They were playing the music that broke on MTV. The whole paradigm shift. MTV just changed everything. And that is, if you look at the baby boomers, by the mid-80s, most of the baby boomers were born in the late 40s, uh, mid to late 40s, early 50s. That's the true baby boomer. Those are the folks that were who were, you know, protesting the Vietnam War, you know, in in the early to mid-60s. They were born in the late, uh, you know, late 40s, early to mid-50s. Well, now, by 1986, they were in their late 30s and early 40s, and they were driving the culture. And they established and grew up with rock and roll. And now they were in charge of the culture. They were driving the culture. And so they were like, you know what? Rock and roll is here to stay. It will, it's will. it been a major force, and it needs its own Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so Jan Wenner and Armit Ardigan and other uh, movers and shakers in the, in the music business at that time devised and, and, and came up with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and Roll which for so many years was laughed at as a fad, was not given any credibility, was not given any respect as a musical entity. Uh, those who grew up with it and lived, who lived it, and it was such a major part of their life, said, no, no, rock and roll deserves a new respect, and we're giving it. And so they created the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's when, you know, initially the first, uh, you know, the first, induction the first class included people like elvis and of all different colors and especially they gave they gave um you know credit to to the to the, to the black uh rock and rollers who sadly were were not given as much credit who were cheated out of their money whose songs were covered by white artists there was still heavy segregation in the 50s and 60s um so that's why suddenly um, some of the pioneers of rock, especially some of the, the black pioneers like Chuck Berry and Sam Cooke and Little Richard were given, were a part of that initial class. In addition to, you know, Elvis Presley and, and Jerry Lee Lewis, who also, you know, other art, white artists, but certainly um, black artists were given their due in that first class. And the whole idea was we are going to rock and roll is finally going to get the respect it deserves. At that time in 1986, rock and roll was the dominant music. It was the music of the culture. It was the music of the baby boomers who were driving the culture, the the yuppies, the the, the folks that were born right after world war two, the folks that grew up in the, in the sixties uh, who were, uh, you know, were, were, Maybe on the tail end of Elvis, but certainly were the were there when the Beatles broke in the mid '60s, who were out there protesting, who were out there in San Francisco during the um, the psychedelic era, who were out there in the mid '70s, 
you know, at the red, at the heavy metal, you know, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd era. And finally, now they were in their late 30s, early 40s, and they said, hey, man, this is our music, and it deserves to be respected. And at that time, it was the dominant music, and thus the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was born. And I'm sure that those people felt, as most of the baby boomer generation does, because they think that their generation is the best, and every generation thinks there is, but the baby boomers more than, than others, felt that their, you know, rock and roll's influence was immortal, that it would never go away. You know, the Who had a great song, Long Live Rock. You know, rock and roll will never die. Rock and roll is here to stay. I mean, it was, that was a common theme. Long live rock. And I'm sure that in 1985 and 86, there's no question that with the popularity that rock and roll music was having, that there was no question that rock was going to be the dominant music for decades, if not centuries to come. At least that was the, 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 the thought process in 1985 and 86. And a lot of people don't even remember how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame got in Cleveland. To drum up interest, several cities were chosen as possible sites, and this is way before the internet. You had to call or send in. You had to call an 800 number to vote, or I believe you had to send in a, a postcard to a certain you know, address and vote. And so Chicago was on there. New York was on there. Um, Memphis was on there because of Sun Records and Elvis, obviously. Cleveland was on there because of Alan Freed, who was one of the earliest rock and roll disc jockeys. Chicago, because of, of its blues heritage, where so many of the influences of rock and roll came from and played here. New York, obviously, just because of its of its overall constant impact california there were a few other cities but those were the main ones and the reason why it landed in cleveland was cleveland was going through a real bad time um both economically as well as reputation wise and so the civic leaders of cleveland as well as radio stations to uh you know find a cause to get listeners and get people excited. The people in Cleveland banded together. The other big cities were kind of like, yeah, it'll be nice if we get it. But Cleveland made it a, a civic goal. Like I said, radio stations, newspapers, the government, they were all supporting. Get out there and vote. Send your card. Call in. Whatever you have to do, make sure that we get this. And Cleveland had, as I said before, a, a legitimate claim. But the other big cities like Chicago and, uh, and New York and, and L.A. and Memphis, you know, they, they, they were interested, but there wasn't these, this, this uh, organized effort. And so Cleveland you know, was, was, was feeling uh, a big inferiority complex and they, at the time, and they figured this would be a big boost for the people living there to be given this, this great honor, this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
It would be good for tourism to get people to come back to Cleveland because people weren't going to Cleveland. As I said, there was a lot of um, a bad press coming out of Cleveland, polluted rivers. Oh, there's a river in Cleveland called the Cuyahoga River that was so polluted, it started on fire. There was so much, there was so much debris in the river that the river started on fire. Look it up. It's unbelievable. So Cleveland was going through a very bad time, and, and the Rock and Roll, getting, getting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, provided a big civic boost, and so they were all in. Now, I don't know how, I don't think the organizers of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thought Cleveland would ever get it, but they wanted to put them there, I think probably as a token thing because of Alan Freed, and they figured, okay, we're going to pick these cities that have some kind of connection to the birth of rock and roll. But I think at the end of the day, they probably figured it's going to end up in New York. And most of those, those, the people that hatched the idea were all based in New York. And I think they probably thought it was going to be in New York and it should be in New York and everything that's cool is in New York. And they just assumed that, yeah, you know, you know, these other cities would, you know, make a little ruckus. But at the end of the day, it's going to, you know, New York will win. It's, it's a big, there's 8 million people, even, you know, just by the numbers alone. New York has to get the most votes. But New York was a little complacent. And Chicago was complacent. And Cleveland was organized. And so Cleveland won it going away. And that's still been a I'm sure the the you know they for the first, you know, 20 years they'd even have the induction ceremonies in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They still had them in New York. They were still in denial. <laughs> And they, and they still go and have it at different places because, you know, it's a, it's a nice uh, area there. I've been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In fact, I mean, being a music fan that I that I am, I was so psyched up about a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And believe me, I mean, I I fell for it hook, line, and sinker too. I was a charter member when they were first getting the place built. I I I you know I sent in as a charter member. I got this card, and I I've gone there several times when you know the first several years it was open, the first ten years or so for different exhibits and things like that. Because wow, this was great. This was my music, and here it was being celebrated uh, and respected for the first time. So yeah, there was a legitimacy to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but. Nobody, and myself included, but certainly not, I believe, the founders and the people who run the Rock and Roll of Fame, could ever have expected how quickly and how completely rock and roll has faded from its once dominant position. And that's just a fact. Did you see the... Hall of, did you see the football halftime show? Was there any rock and roll stars on there? No. All rap hip hop people. The, whoever, whoever has the, the, the halftime show, that's a very good clue as to where the culture is because the NFL is looking to appeal to the biggest audience the biggest mainstream audience. So when you when you look at where do you where is our culture right now? The 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 Super Bowl halftime show is a is a very good indicator of where we're at. I talked about we're in a in a in an era of female empowerment. 
The Oscars are another one of those things. Well, look who you know who's you know who's hosting the Oscars next week? Three women. I talked about female empowerment. Three women are hosting the Oscars. These kind of huge events that are that are tailored to 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 major mainstream audiences. Look at at those as who do who they pick to host them or to perform at them. Because they're looking for the most popular entities to appeal to the biggest audiences possible. And that's who's driving our culture. And so no rock and rollers at all. Rock and roll has been on a decline for many decades, if you want to really be honest. It hasn't been a major entity on the charts or on new radio, on radio stations, on top 40 radio in, in years. It's still there on classic rock. But the only reason that rock and roll is even still in the headlines is because of bands like the Rolling Stones, who are still touring, even in their late 70s. People like Paul McCartney carrying on the Beatles' um, legacy. He just turned 80, or will be turning 80, I believe. Uh, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, all these, uh, Neil Young, all these, uh, these artists from the, the, the 60s and 70s who were so popular, who are still out there touring, they are keeping the flame burning. But within another 10 years or so, if they either retire for good or pass away, then rock and roll will really diminish in the headlines. It's already not on the charts. It's not on new radio. But when those artists stop touring, it will really go down. It's already a niche music. It's already like jazz and big band music. But because those artists are still around, they're keeping it in the mainstream. They're keeping it relevant to a point. But when the Rolling Stones stop, when Bruce Springsteen stops, when Elton John stops, when Paul McCartney stops, as I said, either by retirement or by mortality, then rock and roll will really be gone. There will always be classic rock stations, but rock and roll will, will, and no one ever thought that would happen because sadly, there really isn't a new breed There really isn't a band or movement that is keeping that rock and roll spirit alive. It is is an old music. It is the music of old people and it is the music for old people and by old people. The hip-hop sound is in. It is dominant. Even former pop and rock bands like, say, Maroon 5, they're all playing hip-hop music now. That's the only way you can survive. I've seen it firsthand. And Elton John's current farewell tour, over the last several months, Elton John has had this big, one of the biggest hits of his career, number one single in the United Kingdom and in, uh, in Australia and in several European countries, a top five song here in the United States. Basically, 
an electronic mashup of several of his older songs, like Sacrifice and uh, Rocket Man um, and Kiss the Bride as a duet with Dua Lipa, who is one of the biggest female stars of the day, who sings mostly pop, hip-hop music. But my point is, this song, which is, you know, the, it's ba- Elton didn't perform on it. This is all just taken from master tapes and put together on a computer. There was nothing original done here. Dua Lipa added her vocals, but all of Elton's stuff was all pre-recorded from his master tapes put together by an Australian group called Panal. But they did it in such with a with a with a with a hip hop beat, and Dua Lipa Dua Lipa obviously bringing attention to it as well. Elton John has one of the biggest hits of his career, and it's the most unsounding Elton John song in his in his catalog. He performs it in his concert as the first encore. And the, the irony is for two and a half hours, Elton is playing all his hits and playing the piano with his band. And when he comes out to play his biggest hit in more than 20 years and one of his more successful hits of his career, he's sitting at the piano bench, but he's not playing the piano. His band is not on. They're playing a track. They have a video with... Dua Lipa singing her part, and Elton is just sitting at the piano bench, not even close to the keys, not touching the keys, and singing his little repeated refrain from the song Sacrifice, singing it live. And I and and it I was shocked, and yet I've seen this the restart of this tour when he started to play this. I've seen it now five or six times, and it never fails. Every city I've seen it in, big or small, the crowd goes crazy because they're hearing it on the radio. That's the sound that gets played on the radio. They're hearing that as a new song. You're not hearing new songs by Paul McCartney or the Rolling Stones or Elton John in, as in their own in their usual style on new radio that doesn't get played that's not what young people are listening to but this song which has been created to appeal to the young audience in both its sound and its feel and its beat and then do a leap on it huge huge hit still on the charts was released in September Still on the charts in many in many areas around the world, and the, ple- the 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 crowd goes wild for this song. So that's how I know that rock and roll is dead because while Elton's been playing for the previous two and a half hours all his greatest hits, this song, which features no piano, which features none of his band, and just re- features him repeating. A chorus, a few lines of a chorus of of a couple of songs, and the crowd goes wild. Because the younger people are hearing it on the radio. People are hearing it, even older people are hearing it in their their dentist office and in their elevators and in their shopping centers and there's in their in their in their grocery stores. That's what's being played. Rock and roll, sadly, and it's tough for me to say this because this is my music. But rock and roll is dead. 
And I'm not happy saying that. I love rock and roll. That's all I listen to. But it is not the dominant mainstream music anymore. There are very few. There, are, there is not one big rock band right now. Yes, there is a lot of interesting rock music out there. But there is no dominant rock band of 20-somethings leading the charge. Hip-hop and pop, mostly female-dominated pop, that's what is being listened to by the 14 to 25-year-old, mostly young women and teenage girls. Not rock and roll. And so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been in a quandary for a while here as hip-hop has been becoming more dominant and rock and roll has been declining because they need to survive as an entity. And so sadly, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been diluting its brand, and I've talked about this. And they've been inducting people who are not rock and rollers, like Madonna or Janet Jackson. They've put them in because of their huge popularity and because now the group that is helping is driving the, the, the culture, your millennials and your Generation Xers, they grew up as teenagers and young kids listening to Madonna and, and, um, and Janet Jackson and people that are not rock and roll, but they're finding ways. They're not even just bending the rules. They're breaking their own rules to remain relevant. I understand it, but it dilutes it. It, it. it diminishes the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I've been saying this, that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has either two choices now. Because what's going to happen in a couple of years when Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and some of these boy bands that are completely not rock and roll at all come up for possible nomination and induction. The people that are driving the culture, they grew up with Britney Spears. They think Britney Spears is the greatest thing on earth, and they want to see her in some Hall of Fame. Well, the only music Hall of Fame of any real prominence is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so it's becoming this, this catch-all. But it's, it's called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but then you're letting in Britney Spears? She is not rock and roll. Madonna is not rock and roll. Huge pop star. One of the most successful pop stars in the history of of recorded music. But she's not a rocker. Now, yes, they have have, um, inducted people from the blues area and the country area into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that is legitimate. Because country music and blues music and even bluegrass music are at the foundational heart of what inspired rock and roll. So yes, I can understand why you've got blues artists and country artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, especially older ones. But Madonna and Janet Jackson do not belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake does not belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I guarantee you they're going to be nominated in a couple of years. So the two, my view, the two options the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has, they either have to change their name to the Music Hall of Fame or the Pop Music Hall of Fame, or if they want to keep that brand of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they branded now for 
you know, almost 40 years, 35 years, if they want to keep that, then what they should have is a series of wings, of the, the country wing, the pop wing, the blues wing, the, the, um, the hip-hop wing. But don't put, you can't have this umbrella of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it does, it, it dilutes it. If there's ever, if there's ever a, a hip hop Hall of Fame, are they going to induct Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I don't think so. So why does the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induct Jay Z? Well, there's a movement now in our culture, obviously, to be more diverse, to 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 break down barriers, to to bring all genres of music. I get that, but this place is called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You don't put football players in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, I think you need to keep the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and roll. And that's where I go to celebrate rock and roll. And if I want to celebrate hip-hop or country or pop, then, then let those areas do what the rock and rollers did in the 80s and start your own Hall of Fame. Why can't Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg start their own rock and, you know, and uh, start their own hip-hop Hall of Fame and their rap Hall of Fame? There's nothing wrong with that. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was built to celebrate rock and roll and its music and its pioneers and its attitude. And now we're diluting it. And the and the the people who run it, I understand their their quandary, but you're either rock and roll or you're not. And if you're not, then change your name. Stop stop diluting it. Call it the Music Hall of Fame. And then it is what it is. And rock and roll will be one part of the many celebrated there. And as I said, in another 15 15 years, definitely, but even the next 10 or 5, rock and roll is going to go way down in its popularity and in its influence on our culture. When the Rolling Stones and, and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and Elton John are gone, and Bruce Springsteen, when they're all gone, it will be gone. That's just the truth. There will be radio stations playing classic rock. Don't get me wrong. The music, won't be, the music will still be around, but its impact, I'm saying, its influence, its popularity, it's already down. I believe that rock and roll has been in a downslide probably since the death of Kurt Cobain. In the mid-90s. I believe that's when it started. Because actually grunge music, which was viewed as a, as a savior for rock and roll in the early 90s, with grunge, with Nirvana, and with uh, Pearl Jam, and with Stone Temple Pilots, and, you know, and Soundgarden, and, and alt-rock, you know, Smashing Pumpkins became so popular, it, it flashed and burned. And when Co- Kurt Cobain committed suicide and died, it was gone almost overnight. And because grunge was so aggressive and so abrasive and loud, at the end of the day, the mainstream music 
is always a music that makes people dance. Elvis made people dance. The Beatles initially made people dance. Glenn Miller made people dance. You know, Frank Sinatra made people dance. The jazz people made people dance. You couldn't dance to grunge. It was speed metal and punk with a little pop thrown in. That's not danceable music. In fact, I I would say I would say that that grunge gave birth to a response. It was grunge that birthed Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and the boy bands because people wanted to dance. That's why disco started in the 70s. Heavy metal was dominant in the early to mid-70s, from 70 to 75 or 76, and then disco came along because people were like, we want to have fun, we want to dance. And there was disco. But it was a fad. And it came and went, but people want to dance. Even the 80s music, ultimately, it wasn't called disco, but it was dance music. The move, the biggest movie of the 80s was, was Dirty Dancing. There was a lot of dance music. There was the Pointer Sisters' Jump for Your Love and a Neutron Dance and all this stuff. Yes, there was a lot of all this new wave stuff going on with the British New Wave, but there was also dance music going on. And that's what... And, and so grunge was viewed as the savior and, and, and pop became so big that, that um, you know, your Britney Spears and then your hip-hop became... The answer to the competition for rock and roll. It wasn't. It they they, they weren't they weren't a part of the same thing. They grew as an alternative to rock and roll, the competition to rock and roll, and now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is is celebrating these people whose job it was to push rock and roll out of the mainstream. That's what the pop, that's what the boy bands, that's what the Britney Spears, that's what the hip-hop people and the rap people, they wanted to take over from rock and roll. And now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, is celebrating them. They're celebrating their enemies. Now they'll say, well, no, everybody, oh, the music world is big enough and there's, oh, there's room for everybody. That's fine, that, but that's, it's not a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's been driving me crazy for a long time. And over the last five or six or seven or ten years, some of the people that have gotten in or some of the people that have been nominated are so out of the rock and roll realm, it's not even funny. This year, Dionne Warwick. Do you know who Dionne Warwick is? She was a huge pop star in the 60s and early 70s and even into the 80s. But she's a pop star. Her music was written by Burt Bacharach, the biggest easy listening guy on earth, not a rock and roller at all. How does Dionne Warwick get nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'll tell you why. There's a lot of now African-American movers and shakers from the 60s and 70s in, in in their effort to be more diverse. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has put these other people like Niall Rogers and other people who was in Chic, who was around the 60s and 70s. And he's trying to get some of his people that he was inspired by and feels that they, they, need, they deserve recognition. And they do, but they're not in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is not about race. This is not about anything else. They don't believe in, they don't belong in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They belong in a Music Hall of Fame. That's the, that's the designation. 
So you say, Jim, why do you have this new respect for Dolly Parton? Remember, I started talking about Dolly Parton. (laughs) I'll tell you why I have a new respect for Dolly Parton. Because Dolly Parton was nominated this year for induction, along with Pat Benadar, Kate Bush, Devo, Duran Duran, Eminem, a rap star, Eurythmics, Judas Priest, the New York Dolls, MC5, some New York underground bands of the 70s, Rage Against the Machine, Lionel Richie, not a rock star. Pop star, yes. Lionel Richie, not a rock star. Pop star, yes. Carly Simon, a tribe called Quest, not a rock band. And the aforementioned Dionne Warwick. In the past, Shaka Khan has been nominated. Not a rock star. A soul star, one of the best singers, no question, but not a rock star. Does not belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Dionne Warwick? Do you know the way to San Jose? Alfie? That's not rock music. She does not belong. And Dolly Parton. And I'm reading this list, and I'm like, Dolly Parton? Dion Warwick? What are we talking about? Well, a couple of weeks ago, much to my surprise and great, great admiration and respect, Dolly Parton publicly said, I respectfully decline. I do not belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I do not want to take votes away from people that might get in. I am not a rock and roll artist. Perhaps there'll be a day when I when I make a rock album, but right now, after a 50-year career, right, I, I have not earned a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't want to take votes away. I don't belong. Wow. Thank you, Dolly. And you know what? A few days later, Dionne Warwick, who has been nominated in the past, didn't get in because she shouldn't get into a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Music and Pop Hall of Fame? No question. Dionne Warwick should be near the top of the list, but not a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She came out and said, I don't belong there. And she even said what I've been saying for years. So finally, people are catching on. I have another I told you so moment here. She said, They should change the name of the place to the Music Hall of Fame. Then I would be fine with it. But I am not a rock and roll star. She even said it. Now, she didn't take herself out of the running like Dolly did. But she's basically saying, I don't belong there. Because it's so obvious. So maybe the next five or six years, there will be a Music Hall of Fame. Or there will be a Hip Hop Hall of Fame. Or there will be this catch-all Hall of Fame where these artists, rock and roll, Jazz, hip-hop, country, everybody can come together. But it's not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Keep it pristine. Keep it what it was meant to be, what it was founded as, a celebration of rock and roll. Not Dionne Warwick, not Dolly Parton, not Janet Jackson. And don't try to justify it. Oh, well, they've got this... This this same attitude. That's not. They're not rock and roll people. I understand the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is fighting for its life, for its for its relevance, 
because nobody's young people don't listen to it. So who's going to come? Do you ever go to a, to a hard rock cafe? If you go to a hard rock cafe today, nobody's walking around the walls looking at the memorabilia. You know why? Because all that memorabilia that's on the walls of the Hard Rock Cafe for the last 30 years are by people that nobody in their 20s and certainly their teens even know who they are. They don't care. They, 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 they might as well be, uh, you know, just blank walls. They don't even notice the memorabilia. People my age still do. Wow, there's Jimi Hendrix's thing. There's Elvis's thing. There's But anybody who's in their their teens or their 20s or even their late 20s. They walk around and go, who's, who's Frank Zappa? <laughs> who's Deep Purple? Who's, you know, they may know Ozzy Osbourne because of the Osbourne show on MTV, but that's it. Not because of any song he did. Who's Black Sabbath? Who's Simon and Garfunkel? They don't know. The Hard Rock Cafe... It is more about they're more about you know their branding of themselves of their whole their own hard rock logo, but all that memorabilia they hang there, which used to be the draw of a hard rock cafe, nobody even looks at it anymore. I've been to many hard rock cafes recently. I don't see anybody walking around looking at the stuff except me. They don't even tell you who's in there anymore. They used to have a list of all the stuff. They don't even bother because no one's no one cares. It's sad to say, but rock and roll as an entity, as a relevant entity, is not is is on life support. There's a lot of people out there making rock and roll, but it's not cutting through. The influences, the rebellion that fed rock and roll don't exist anymore. Now they might because we are in a very turbulent time right now in our culture. Those same seeds that gave birth to rock and roll you can argue are around. Maybe rock will get an insurgent resurgence sometime in the next five or ten years based on the way our culture is going right now, the great transformation that's going on. It might, but rap and hip-hop and even country are, and pop are so popular now. Rock and roll is fourth or fifth on the list, if it's lucky. And that's, as I said, only because some of the, the baby boomer rockers are still around and still drawing crowds. But when they're gone, it will be gone. I'm not happy about it, but I'm just being realistic, as I've always said I am with you guys. So Dolly Parton, I have a huge, huge new admiration and respect for her. It would be very easy to take this award, to take the bow, to go to the the um, uh, to go to the uh, you know the ceremony, and to have everybody stand ovation and clap and take in all that love, it would be very easy to do that. And I guarantee you she would have gotten in. And I think she knows she would have gotten in. And that's why she said, I don't belong, because she didn't want to take away votes from real rock and roll people who do deserve to be in there. And that takes a lot of guts. And that takes, that takes a lot of shedding of your own ego. So, wow, Dolly... I might not love a lot of your music, but I have a whole new respect for Dolly Parton as a person and as an artist because she's been able to do what even the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame itself can't do, realize the reality of the situation and celebrate rock and roll in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
Hello, Dolly. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Don't forget, every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget, send a message, send a link, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 304. I'm Jim Toronto, and here on Business, I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, from the end of the web to your screen.